I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why, presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello and welcome to The How, The Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls, and today it is my great pleasure to be connected with author Ruta Sepetis, author of Between Shades of Grey, uh, author of Out of the Easy, and most recently, Salt to the Sea. Ruta, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm going to pretend like this is the first time we've gone through this, but we uh, we started the interview and I neglected to record because I was so excited to talk to you. Now uh, I, we were we were talking about and we're I don't know why I'm even prefacing this because none of the listeners need to know, but uh, <laughs> I'm 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 honest and and I like to own up. Uh, but we were talking about the importance of writing historical fiction and, and, and the importance of the existence of historical fiction and how I believe that it is more educational than actually reading a textbook of history. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, I think there is a way historical fiction through characters and story, um, it makes a statistic a human being. Mm. And it's at that point of connection that our heart sort of opens and we actually care about history and the people who experienced it. You're right. And that's that's what's important. And, you know, and, and I was reading through Salt of the Sea and I love that you gave each character from their different background, their own story and their own voice, because you, you really, it wasn't about the politics of the time. It wasn't about the one person's point of view or how they saw the war. It was about human beings experiencing this, this awful, tragic thing. Yeah, exactly. And as I was researching the book, I learned that human beings can experience the same event and each one will have radically different interpretations uh, of it. And that's what led me to tell the story from the point of view of four different characters. Now, I'd love to go back and uh, find the impetus for taking on this career as a writer. I know you went to school, you studied, I read that you, you studied opera, and then you went on to study finance, which is drastically different, or maybe not, I don't know. Um, but but when did the, the call of storytelling come to you? Well, the call of storytelling actually came first, um, but the call of courage was was not arm in arm with the call to storytelling. I I wrote my first novel when I was in third grade, and although my classmates, <laughs> my classmates really liked it, um, the parental censors did not, and um, the parents felt it was really an 
it was inappropriate, especially for a third grader to be writing. The book was called The Adventures of Betsy. Mm. And, uh, you know, parents didn't appreciate The Adventures of Betsy, and it stole my courage. And I loved books and music sort of equally. Um, and so because I lost my courage and didn't have someone at that point to tell me, hey, wait a minute, you know, if this is really controversial, you might be on to something. Um, so instead, I pursued music. And for 22 years, uh, I worked as an artist manager and I was helping songwriters and musicians and producers tell stories, but through music. And a song is a three-minute story. Um, and yeah, an, an opera is a story, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so I had a little, I had a, a rocky, rocky start to writing. <laughs> now, what was the, I'm going to use the word call again, because I mean, you know, to tell something as grand as uh, uh, Between Shades of Grey, there, there is a call to it in that you are called to tell that specific story. And I know you've talked about this before, but do you remember like the specific moment of, I need to, I need to write this. I do. And there were actually two, two moments, you know, as there often are, you have that moment, that epiphany, but then you're like, eh, should I do it or should I not do it? And I had been working in music for over 20 years and I realized with these brilliant songwriters that I had the opportunity to work with that their best material and the material that most deeply connected with listeners and audience members um, was material that was based on their own experience. And I believe that that had an emotional truth to it. And as painful as it was for these musicians to mine their own heartache, you know, to write these songs, when they did it, it really had sustained impact. And so I was constantly asking the musicians, okay, let's drill down. What's the story? What's the story? And the, the moment was, I was backstage with one of these rock bands, and the lead singer turned to me and said, okay, Sepetis, what's your story? Hmm. And I said, oh, I'm Lithuanian. And he said, I'm so sorry, Ruta, how long have you had that? He thought it was illness. <laughs> and I said, no, Lithuania is a country. And he said, you know, I don't think I've ever seen Lithuania on a map. And to his point, for 50 years... Lithuania was not on a map. It was part of the Soviet Union. And so that was the moment when I thought, wow, wait a minute. And he really pressured me. He said, wait, that, you know, you're lame. You're pushing us on our stories and you're Lithuanian and I don't even know what that means. What does it mean? And so then fast forward, um, I was in Lithuania visiting family members and asked if they had uh, any pictures of my relatives. And they confessed that they had burned all the photographs of my father and his extended family um, because when my father fled from Lithuania, many of my relatives were arrested and deported to Siberia. Amen. And it was at that moment that I thought, you know, I have studied Hitler and, and Mussolini, but what do we know about Stalin? And why do we not know that 14 million people were deported to Siberia? And so that's really what made me want to tell this story. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it is amazing how that part of history isn't more widely spread. I, I had the honor to uh, interview this director named Anne Fontaine. Uh -huh. Anne directed this movie called The Innocents. 
Um, and you kind of touched a little bit on this uh, in Salt to the Sea with uh, Amelia's experience with Russian soldiers. The Innocence was about these this Polish monastery, uh, Polish uh, uh, nunnery, and these Russian soldiers taking advantage of these nuns who didn't know what was happening. And it was this French Red Cross uh, doctor, this female doctor who came and helped these women give birth when they didn't even know what was happening to them, right? So another one of these stories of like, wow, man, there were some really horrible things that happened. And we only hear, and I don't know if it's because the Soviets were our allies at that time, but we only hear about the atrocities from the German side. Exactly. And there are many sides to a story. And as an author, when I'm researching, I try to to walk around the entire topic and and not just you know define a piece of history um, like oh these were these people were good and these people were bad. It's never like that. And I'm fascinated with the um, the project that you you reference. That sounds absolutely intriguing and there are these really difficult periods of hardship in in history and I want I not only want to know about them I want to know what can we learn from them absolutely. how do we how do we find the strength in the struggle or the hope in the hardship otherwise sometimes this stuff can get really really bleak and sad absolutely I mean, and it is bleak and sad and and you would hope that somehow that the the human being would be able to learn from the, our mistakes and rise above it and yet like as I was reading through Salt of the Sea I kept thinking about refugees crossing the Mediterranean and you know even here in the States people coming from Cuba in these little boats and having you know trying to make it to America and, and these things continue to happen and I know that we're not going to be able to solve it right now, but what you do with your books helps bring light to it and hopefully brings that sense of humanity to these struggles and atrocities. I, I hope so. And I, I know better than to think that I'm going to you know, solve this massive problem. I know I can't do that, but maybe through studying the past, we can give context to the present. And especially in my case, because my books are not only read by adults, they're read by students. And maybe for students to see, there was this massive refugee evacuation at the end of World War II, and then how they can bring context, you know, to the current refugee evacuation. Mm. Yeah. Now, when when you start writing these stories, do you have that in mind? That uh, do you have your audience in mind? Do you think like, well, maybe this will be read by younger people, or are you just writing the story? I never have my audience in mind. <laughs> Maybe that's a terrible thing. What I have in mind is um, is really paying attention to the people I've been able to interview, to be to be present when I interview them, and not view them as a character. Uh, to read historical texts very closely to, to to understand the nuances and the layers and um hillary mantel who's brilliant brilliant uh, author of historical fiction says that it's best to leave the reader hungry you know don't write down always always give your reader the benefit of the doubt that you know that they will 
figure it out and leave them hungry. And so I try to do that. And so I don't think about, oh, who will read this? And will mm. they like this? No, it's, it's about the piece of history and honoring the people who experienced it. Do you consider yourself a young adult writer or, or do you consider yourself more an author of historical fiction? Thank you for asking that because people, uh, people will ask that question a lot. Many people fail to believe that I am a young adult writer. And yet, first and foremost, I'm an author of historical fiction, mm. but I'm an author of historical fiction for young adults. And the reason I feel so passionately about it is that I have this theory that books we read when we are 13, 14, have an opportunity to make a tremendous impact on us. Even books that we read when we're younger, we can all remember. I'm sure all of your listeners can can point out a book that they read when they're young that they still carry with them. And so I figure if I'm writing about these hidden pieces of history, there is no better audience, no more honest audience than young people. They're the future. So that's why I passionately say that I am an author of historical fiction for young adults. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I remember being a, a kid in fourth, fifth, maybe fifth or sixth grade, so 12 years old, uh -huh. and uh, reading this book, Let the Circle Be Unbroken, um, which was uh, part of a, a, I don't know if it was, a, I can't remember if it was a trilogy or not, but it was about, um, it was about the African-American struggle and it was something that, you know, from me, from this little town in Napa, California, had no, I had no experience with, right? And you could read about it in history, but again, it's reading these stories and reading these characters and seeing the relationships of mother to children and fathers and, and you see it as human beings, not as, oh, that's a weird thing that they went through. Like you see it as that could have been me. Absolutely. And I would wager that when you read that book in, you said maybe fourth or fifth grade, right? right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, in fourth or fifth grade, our, we have such a deep sense of emotional truth. We are not yet jaded. We perhaps don't yet have filters um, to read something and, and maybe try to read something into it. If we, if we love someone, we truly love someone, and if our heart breaks, it breaks in a million pieces. Um, and so I love that that was a book that you, you still remember mm -hmm. uh, that made such an impact on you. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. We, I was watching one of your uh, videos about your books, and you brought up this concept of research rapture and as a historical <laughs> an author of historical fiction i know every one of your books you have spent a lot of time researching so let's talk a little bit about how you even begin and and you know we could take uh we'll, we'll take salt of the sea um for this conversation's sake but how do you begin with your research what is the the first thing that you start with well, first I'll point out that I'm sure every writer's process is different and, and mine might be um, a little nutty, but uh, I love the research process. To me, it's like being a detective of some sort or something. And, and so what I do first is I will try to find all of the nonfiction texts that I can. So I'll, I'll read if there's 
you know, a nonfiction book or uh, an academic paper. Um, so I can familiarize myself with the time period, with the event. So when I do speak to people, at least I have a certain knowledge base on the topic so I don't sound like a complete idiot. And, and, gen and so I often say that my work stands on the shoulders of these historians um, and these writers of nonfiction. So once I, I have that base, then I move on to memoirs and journals. Mm. And if any of your listeners think, well, my life isn't important, I shouldn't journal, oh, I beg you. <laughs> no, please. Even just finding, for example, people during the year 1945 who had these notebooks and all they, all they wrote was what the weather was like, what they ate, maybe one small detail about what happened or where they went. And it, it wasn't, you know, romantic. It wasn't dangerous. It wasn't. But that informs my writing and writers of historical fiction. That's gold. So we look for those. Then I move on to uh, interviewing people who actually experienced what I'm writing about. And that, of course, is when the story really, really takes shape. Because as an author of fiction, I can take elements from a hundred people and quilt them together to create one character. Hmm. Well, I love it. It's kind of, it makes me think of Alfred in the salt to the sea, uh, as the, uh, observation was his job. I'm the observer, uh, just in a awkward and weird sort of way. He was an observer, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I am a huge fan of journaling. And I, I think even journaling, or whether you call it writing in a diary or whatever it is, uh, to I always believe that it's it's your way of getting out what it is that you're feeling, and and almost I mean it is definitely therapeutic. But it, going back to read others, you know, who have passed away from time before, to discover well they are not that different, I and mean, even though what they had at their disposal was different their human condition that the life that they lived is not that different from mine they loved they 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 lost they you know craved they they longed for uh we we, we haven't changed that much oh i'm so glad you said that because i think you're exactly right i think that reading um especially family members um even if it's just as you said fact diary entries um, of their day, it gives us insight into ourselves. Um, for example, I am the only one, or so I thought, in my family who suffers from extreme motion sickness, car, seasick, airsick. And I thought, why am I the only one in my family who does this? But, but then as I was reading through some papers, I found notations that my great-grandmother suffered terribly from motion sickness. And mm. at that moment, it helped me make sense of myself. And so if, if we could think of it as a, not only as a personal and introspective way to make sense of ourselves, but also maybe a generous way to allow other people, um, you know, to make the world less lonely for other people. Absolutely. Now, as far as finding survivors, how did you go about doing the research? I mean, aside from reading things that were documented back in 1945, how did you find survivors or, or relatives of survivors of uh, what happened on the 
the Wilhelm Gostloff. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you're pr pronouncing it perfectly. And and for your listeners, so they know, um, Salt to the Sea tells the story of um, the largest maritime disaster in history, something that dwarfs the Titanic and the Lusitania combined, but yet somehow a story that history has opted to forget. And there were the ship held 1,400 people. And as you know from reading it, when it sailed, it was carrying over 10,000 people. Hmm. And over 9,000 drowned when it was torpedoed by a Soviet submarine. So there were only 900 survivors. 70% had, more than 70% had passed away. So what I did first was, again, I tried to go to the source, in this case, the territory where the ship departed. And uh, my publisher in Poland actually helped me because I don't speak Polish, nor do I write in, in the Polish language. And so my Polish publisher helped me. And through putting the word out via social media, we found two of the divers who were elderly men at this point, but at the time were young men who had explored the sunken Guslov shortly after it went down. Hmm. And those two men were my first, my first stop and boy, they just opened up this this historical world to me. And generally, if I can find one eager, uh, you know, person to interview, they can connect me to someone else. And and so it just it's like I I hopscotch from one person to uh, the next person. And in this way, I know many writers don't talk about what they're working on, but for me. I do put the word out on social media. I tell people what I'm working on because that's going to bring these stories to me. Right, right. Now, I know that um, next year, I believe, um, uh, Between Shades of Grey is going to be made into a movie, Ashes in the Snow, or it is made into a movie and will be released next year. And uh, Salt to the Sea uh, is being made into the movie currently as we are interviewing. Um, now, how is that for you as a writer? How much do you get to work with the uh, screenwriters and how much influence do you have on how that story is told in cinematic form? Well, for me so far, it's been an incredible experience. Um, Ashes in the Snow is already in post-production, um, and I have seen various edits of the movie, and it's absolutely incredible. I think it's actually better than my novel, which mm. I know a lot of authors you know, can't say that, but I'm really fortunate. But for me, to answer your question about how involved I am, that really depends on how carefully I have done my work in choosing the team that adapts the book. Right. And in the case of uh, Between Shades of Grey, which will be called Ashes in the Snow, because we all know there's another shade of gray. Well, I was going to ask that question too, but <laughs> you maybe we can, I, I mean, it's so like we're talking about some really deep and heavy things. And I was going to say yeah. that book came out pretty close to the time that another Shades of Grey book came out. And I wanted to know how that affected you. So maybe you could answer that and then we'll go back into the movie. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine you you publish this book, which you never think is going to be published. I mean, really, a Lithuanian girl starving in a gulag in Siberia. Really, not very commercial. but <laughs> And your it, first it, book, too. Exactly. And it's my first book. And it, it's, it's published um, by Penguin. And it, it hits the New York Times bestseller list. And then eight months later, Oof. there is another shade of gray. And the confusion 
um, the confu- there was a lot of confusion, which actually worked to my benefit. Sure. <laughs> people were emailing me um, saying, I, you know, I saw the first line of your book. The first line is, they took me in my nightgown. <laughs> and they said, I thought I was getting one shade of gray. And But people then would say, I had no idea Joseph Stalin did this mm. to people. So it did bring me some readers. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it, yes, it did cause um, some confusion, especially when I was visiting schools in um, in the U.S. That was a little bit tricky. Um, but outside the U.S., uh, the book has a different title. In every language, it's, it has a different title. They don't, in all cases, keep the same title as the English title. Sure, so right. it was really only states and, and England and Australia where I had a problem. But the movie will be called Ashes in the Snow. So. <laughs> and uh, did you have a say in the uh, the renaming of the movie? Um, I didn't have you know the final choice, but because I chose... So carefully, um, the team that, that I worked with on the adaptation, they were so respectful and considerate and reverent and coming to me when they didn't need to. And I would say, you guys, you got this. Trust me, it's mm-hmm. okay. But out of respect, they would come to me and say, how do you feel if we take this character out? Or how do you feel if we, you know, if we change their name? Or how do you feel? Um, and for me, that was all really fun. And in most cases, it actually served the story really, really well. Hmm. So now, Salt to the Sea, it's an entirely different situation because um, it's been picked up by Universal Pictures with an incredible um, producer and incredible screenwriters. And um, and when I and the first movie, they were equally incredible. But this is on. We have to sink a ship, you know. So yeah, it's a, it's a big it's a big production. But again. I, I met with so many different people, and and their vision uh, just really resonated with me. And everything so far, it's just been a dream. But but that said, I consider screenwriting and novel writing different art forms, and I respect them as such. So, and I came to writing novels so late in my life that I think there would be a very large learning curve for me to write a screenplay, and sure. I'm much happier. Uh, to watch how these incredible screenwriters do their work. <laughs> do you have any desire to pen a screenplay or make an adaption of, uh, I mean, you have three books, but maybe there are, I'm sure there are going to be many more. Is that something that you'd like to attempt at some point? You know, at this point, no. I have a list of 23 novels that wow. are, I've got queued up to write. <laughs> and, um, and there are so many brilliant screenwriters out there. Um, what I do love, though, I I love collaborating. And a friend of mine, um, or an author friend of mine, she once said, you know, writing is, can, can be a team sport. And for me, it is. I have a writing group that I've been part of for 10 years. You know, every two weeks we meet, we, we exchange pages. Uh, we started unpublished. We're all published now. Um, and so I love collaborating with these film and television teams, but maybe not doing the writing. So I'm still part of it. But uh but they're much better suited, I think, to handle the screenwriting. Do you feel comfortable talking about what you're working on now? Or is that something? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm always comfortable because maybe there's someone out there that says, wow, I have someone for you to speak to. Um, right now, I'm, I'm working on a book that's set in Spain during the Franco dictatorship. Hmm. 
again, we know a lot about Hitler, about Mussolini, about Stalin. Franco was, it was a military dictatorship for decades, but yet we really don't know that much about it. So my novel is set um, in the 50s in Madrid, and during Franco's dictatorship, it's estimated that over 300,000 babies were stolen from families that didn't align with fascism, and they were gifted or sold or bartered to fascist families or Catholic families. So I'm telling the story of the lost children of Francoism. And I've been traveling to Madrid. I had an apartment there. I spent time there. I've been doing DNA testing with some of these stolen children. Um, it, it's been absolutely fascinating. Mm, man. Now, what is, let's talk a little bit about your actual routine of sitting down and writing. So you've done all your research, and I'm sure the research doesn't stop. But at what point during the research process do you sit down and write, and what does it look like when you sit down to write? I I try to write as I'm researching because I fear that if I research and then I write that I'll lose some of the emotional immediacy and intensity. So as I'm researching, I am making notes. I'm writing paragraphs. Generally, I'm writing dialogue because mm. I, I hear the characters' voices very clearly. And I, I write as if I'm watching a movie, which <laughs> might sound kind of creepy to, to some people, but it's as if I can see and hear the characters. And so while I'm researching, I'm writing the, the dialogue. Um, and in terms of my writing process, um, I know that some people have have a muse that comes to them and says, I am now going to tell you the story. But for me, I have to put my butt in the chair and I have to start working before that muse will show up. Right. It's sort of like, you know, you don't want to go to the gym, you don't want to take the run, but once you do, once in a while... <laughs> You know, maybe you can feel this runner's high or maybe you're thinking, yeah, I didn't want to do this, but actually now I'm really glad I did. So I have to really force myself to get my butt in the chair. But once I do, and, and I'm telling you, my first drafts are so ugly and, I, I'm, <laughs> and I'm literally writing on the page, this is crap, fix it later. Um, <laughs> then something will happen and you know what? The muse shows up and it feels effortless. And it's those moments. I certainly don't have them every day, but it's those moments. I know those moments are there that I kind of live for. So that's what keeps me going. I say that motivation leads to inspiration for me. Your books are very, uh, they're, they're, they're emotionally charged and there are some pretty horrific things that happen. Do you ever get emotional when you write? Like, do you, do you ever write something and like just start tearing up thinking about the loss of a character or the the tragedy that you're writing about? I, I do so often, and I my family laughs. They they say that that I'm the worst candidate to write this kind of material because I'm a very sensitive person, and I cry so easily, and I feel so deeply for these people. But I figure that if I'm crying when I'm writing, maybe a reader will feel moved. Mm. And like we talked about earlier, it's at that moment of connection that someone says, wait a minute, I need to know more about this. What really happened? And 
that's what I want. So in my, in a little way, my books are a door for people to, to discover more about, you know, this hidden history. But I get so emotional when I'm writing. And that's also why I rarely do um, readings. Once I write a book, I actually never go back to it. Um, I've never read my other books in their entirety. And uh, when I do events, it's rare that I'll read. If someone asks, of course, I, you know, I, I'll respect them. Of course, I'll read from the book. But generally, I'm, I'm not a good candidate to read. And so I haven't done my audiobooks uh, either. So I'm not a crying mess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then final question. I'm curious how uh, studying music and uh, opera and working in the music industry helps you as a writer. You are one of the few people that has ever asked me this question, and I am so grateful you did because it is it is so interwoven. Um, we m might read something and five minutes from now not be able to recite what we've read. Right. But tonight we might hear a song on the radio that we haven't heard for 10 years, and we can sing every word to the song. And that's because melody and rhythm make things memorable, whether it's a, a scene in a movie, the score, the, the source music that they put in, it makes it memorable. And in prose, rhythm and flow, that's what makes things memorable. And sometimes readers will come up to me at events, young students, and they'll repeat a line from the book. And I know it's not my writing, <laughs> it just happens to be the rhythm. Um, and so I, I really do believe that those years that I spent in the the music industry bailing these fabulous rock stars out of jail, like it really did, <laughs> it really did help me. It made an impression on me. I read my work aloud, listening for rhythm and flow. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ruta, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, I, 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 everybody, please go out and and pick up her books and see these movies because they're they're really important stories. Uh, I mean, I even went and started looking through photos of the Wilhelm Gostloff, and I, there's one photo where it's loaded with people, and I'm sure it's when it's leaving the port, and the people are just pouring over the side, and it's so tragic and. Uh, we we need more stories like this to remind us where we came from and, and hopefully help us not repeat history. Yeah, and it's going to be your listeners who then become readers that are the ones who are bringing the history out of the dark. So I'm in a creative partnership with readers. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thank you. This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How the Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.